and of the Lord. Turn with me again to Luke chapter 1. And we'll begin reading at verse 67. Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Well, there is not one true child of God who does not yearn, I believe, for stronger faith. It's not the case, you see, that one who is a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has the strength of faith that he or she would desire. In hours of temptation, they yearn for stronger faith to be faithful unto their Lord. In hours of despair and darkness, they yearn for the light of God's love to shine upon them. In their day-to-day walk with the Lord, as they carry about their duties, they yearn for a sense of his presence and favor in their life. And I would tell you today there are no shortcuts in this. For as many people who would yearn to have strong faith, there are not as many Christians who are diligent in the use of the means whereby God is pleased to fortify your faith, grow your faith. It is through the word of God, not through the casual perusing of it, but the deep study and meditation, not only just considering the words and the phrases, but their significance, their application unto your soul. This is why the preaching of the Word of God is so important and why we in this study of the Gospel of Luke are giving care to give specific note to every portion of sacred scripture, not as some intellectual exercise, not because we just want to shore up so many facts of Bible knowledge, but that the Lord would grow and strengthen our faith. Surely this is the desire of everyone who has truly been born again by the Lord's Spirit. And I would go further. It is as the word of God directs us unto the person and work of Christ, bringing to our minds the awesome works of redemption which he has accomplished. It is in this way that the smoking flax, as it were, the weak, flickering faith of a troubled child of God is stirred up into a burning fire of flame in passionate zeal for the Lord. And so it is that verses 69 and 68 deserve our attention. You remember last time we considered how it was that Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, upon the birth of his son, who was to be the forerunner 
of Jesus Christ himself was moved by the Holy Spirit to speak these words of praise concerning the Lord God of Israel, the one who had visited and redeemed his people. And so he is the same subject here in verse 69. He, the Lord God of Israel, hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Now, where we would consider someone being raised up, children, you shouldn't be thinking of someone was lying down on a lawn chair and then decided to sit up. No, this is describing their significance in the story of history. Maybe you know that. When you study history in school, your teacher doesn't tell you about each and every person who's ever lived, their uh, day of birth and everything that happened to them. No, they focus upon those great figures who have shaped history. And none have shaped history like Jesus Christ, this one raised up by the Lord God of Israel. This exact Greek word is used to other places by the same writer in reference to the same uh, concept. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 16, after Jesus Christ raised a little boy from the dead, in Luke 7 verse 16, of the people it says, they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us. Then in Luke's other book, the book of Acts, as he records the great sermon that the Apostle Paul preached in the synagogue of Pisidia, one of the things that is drawn out there is his words where he introduces Jesus. He says, God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. I would put to you, if you want to understand something of the significance of Christ being raised up by God, it would be good to do a further study today from Judges chapter 2. That's the chapter in which God is really recounting the history from the entry into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And then after Joshua dies, the people begin to follow strange gods. They forsake the Lord God and they begin to worship the Balaam and they bring down the just judgment and vengeance of God upon the people and great enemies would afflict and torment them as punishment. And then what you see in that chapter is it speaks of God raising up judges, special champions in order to redeem his people. Judges chapter 2, verse 18. And when the Lord raised them up judges. Then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings and by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. Oh, we spoke last time, didn't we, about how God accomplished that great redemption when he heard the groanings of his people under bondage in Egypt, so also he heard their groanings 
under the bondage of their oppressors of the surrounding nations in the days of the judges. So also he will hear us, hear us in our affliction, in our spiritual bondage and oppression as we call upon the name of his great champion, the Lord Jesus, this one raised up to be the great horn of salvation. I would divide the doctrines in this verse in the following way. First, if you're writing these down, there'll be a word about prophecy, a word about prophecy. Second, a word about promise. And in the third place, a word about power. So three P words for you to consider. Prophecy, promise, and power. Well, first, we will consider how it is that God raising up Christ is connected with prophecy. Look again at verse 69 and 70. And hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Well, the words of prophets are especially spoken of here. And isn't that interesting, children? God is the one speaking, but it says he's speaking through the words of the prophets. Prophets, you know, are what? They are messengers of the Lord. Not just any messenger but ones who had a special calling to give new revelations from on high. The religion of Christianity, you see, is the religion of the prophets. Now, if you've gone out with us in our group that goes out to the local mosque on Fridays in order to witness to some of the Muslim people. You know how often our discussions, respectful and kind to our Muslim neighbors, seeking to share with them the gospel, revolve around this whole matter of the prophets. The prophets. There's some awareness, however twisted by the lies of Satan, that for them, they cannot access the true knowledge of God merely through their reason, merely through their experience. No, they understand in their own way that there must be a word from heaven. Why would the devil use this as the foundation for the false religion of Islam? Well, because it's a counterfeit of the genuine truth without a word from the prophets, the religion of Christianity would fade into subjectivism. Our own ideas would direct us. Our own experiences would be the measure of all things No, But by the words of the prophets, those who were especially called and commissioned to reveal Revelations from on high is our religion to be established. And the focal point of the Christian religion is that Jesus Christ is the pinnacle. He is the highest peak of prophetic revelation. 
in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1. You have those glorious words in the first verse. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And so the coming of Jesus and the message of Jesus and the work of Jesus, it assumes the revelation committed to the prophets. It indeed is consistent with the words committed to the prophets. And indeed, not only do the words of the prophet anticipate Anticipate the coming of Jesus as the full and final revelation of God, as the chief and greatest of the prophets. But also, they themselves have Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the only Son of God, as the very heart of their message. This is what we gather from what Zacharias is saying here as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Go back as far as you would desire to look. Go through all the pages of the recorded writings of the prophets in the Old Testament. And you'll find this is their message. It's all about Jesus. You want to understand the guide that would be necessary to traverse this great labyrinth of revelation found in the Old Covenant, you need to have this as your sure God. It's about Christ. It is the same that is spoken by the uh, Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, where it speaks of the great salvation of Christ, and there it says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow see, not only did the prophets speak about Christ, they spoke by the Spirit of Christ. The eternal Son of God moved them by His Spirit to compose and to preach their words. And it was about this, the sufferings of Christ, His humiliation as a sin-bearer, and His exaltation and glorification as the risen Redeemer. Everything bound up with Him. You know, it can sometimes be uh, quite an exercise when you get a great big puzzle and you have all the pieces on the table. Maybe there's a thousand pieces on the table. Each one has just a little bit of color, a little bit of an image on it, and it all looks chaotic until you look at the box top and then you come to see. That is the picture, that all these individual pieces uh, fit together into. And so it is that all of the Bible and all the Old Testament in this context, they are about Jesus. Maybe, children, you remember that after Jesus rose from the dead, 
many of his disciples were very upset and uh, crying even. They were so sad that their beloved Jesus had died on the cross, been betrayed. And so it seemed as though they would never see him again. And two of those uh, disciples were there on the road to Emmaus, we read in Luke 24. And as they are speaking to one another, as they're seeking to console one another, then a mysterious uh, messenger comes along beside them. And it was Jesus, but he was, he was hiding himself from them so they couldn't understand him. And he asked them, well, why are you crying? What's, what are you so upset about? And they say, oh, we thought this Jesus was the one we were waiting for, but now he is dead. And so they were so upset. And Jesus, still hiding his appearance from them, his identity, he says in Luke 24 and verse 25, then said he unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, wouldn't you have loved that, children, to be there as Jesus himself opened up the Bible and explained how it was all about him? That must have been the most of incredible Bible lessons that were ever given. Well, what is it that the prophets spoke about Jesus? Well, we can't say everything. But you notice that the emphasis here is about from the beginning. From the beginning, as far back as you would care to think, then the word of the prophets has prevailed in order to sustain the faith of the Lord's people throughout all the ages of the old covenant. They were anticipating the great coming of the Savior. Maybe you remember that the first promise given by the mouth of God himself to our parents, Adam and Eve. It concerned how he would bring vengeance upon the serpent, the devil. He said in Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, he says to the devil. The Messiah shall bruise thy head. And thou shalt bruise his heel. So much contained in that. The suffering of Christ as he himself is bruised. But his victory over the devil as the conqueror and champion of the Lord's people. Well, the promise of the seed, that would be sufficient in itself to, to just trace out how the promised seed Unto, Abraham, unto Noah, and then unto Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob. It was always concerning Christ. It was concerning Christ and the people in Christ, who, of whom it was said, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 3. We could trace that out and see how the faith of the Lord's people was always looking to that. The promised seed, the snake crusher, the champion of the Lord's people. Through whom all nations, all peoples, through whatever background they may be, may come unto the feet of Jesus and receive salvation. In the book of Enoch, we sorry, the book of Jude, rather, in the book of Jude, chapter one, it speaks of Enoch as the one who was just seven generations from Adam. And already he was prophesying of not only one who would redeem his people, but also would judge all people through his great throne of judgment. Jude chapter 1 verse 14 says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands, of his saints to execute judgment upon all. Maybe you've heard children about Jacob in your Sunday school lessons lately. Jacob was the descendant of Isaac, who was the descendant of Abraham, and, and he was given a great prophecy of a glorious king who would rise out of the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter, scepter rather, the, the great, throw, great uh, scepter of the king shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The Lord's servant Moses, himself a great prophet, spoke of the greatest of all prophets to be raised up by the Lord. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, like unto Moses, and will put my words, says the Lord, in his mouth. And he shall break, sorry, he shall speak unto them, all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. The full and final revelation of God coming through the Messiah, through the Christ, the greatest of all prophets, the greatest of all messengers. This is the very one whom the prophet Zechariah spoke of as the humble king riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Zechariah 9 verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the fowl of an ass. Here we see that all things were pointing unto Christ. He is the one whom Isaiah spoke about. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised 
for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The great and glorious prophet, the humble king, he is also a suffering servant, as a priest, dying as the atonement for his people. Oh, all of the prophets had this as their message. This was their burden. This is what they earnestly desired to look into. Is this what you desire to look into? Is this what you search the words of the prophets for? This is often a sad thing in the life of a Christian. They are getting into the Bible and, and they are just trying to get their footing. How is it that I can really read the Bible for all it's worth? How is it that I can plumb the depths of the riches of this sure word of God? Well, here are two very simple lessons. One, skip nothing. Skip nothing. All the Bible is breathed out by God. All of it is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of prophecy. If we would neglect anything in the Holy Bible and count it as, as not for us, not for the church today, certainly not for the ordinary Christian, maybe for Bible scholars, I tell you we are denying ourselves something of the rich revelation of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Do not neglect the Holy Bible, my friend. Lay it up in your heart. Read it all. Treasure it all. And this is the second lesson. Find Christ there. See him as the great source and summit and substance of everything that we find here in the Holy Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. One God, one faith, one mediator, one salvation. Let us not read the Bible in a disjointed fashion, but let us see that the unity is found in Christ and his great salvation. So it was that Christ himself said, Luke 24, verse 44, before he is ascension unto heaven, these, the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things might be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So we see first a word about prophecy. But second, let us see a word about promise, a word about promise. This is specifically what the text directs us to in verse 69, where the Lord God of Israel hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Well, I'm sure, children, as we've been going through this series in Luke, you've really noticed that David is pretty important in this whole chapter. That was what the angel Gabriel had said unto the Lord's mother Mary way back, we saw in verse 31. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. 
and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And it's not only here. Throughout the New Testament scriptures, wherever there's a prominent summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he came to do, you shouldn't be surprised to see that the name David keeps on coming up. So, for example, very um, famously in the first words of the epistle to the Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul uh, touches on similar themes in our text. For example, Paul, an, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So much ground covered there. But just to say that it is the fact that he is made of the seed of David that is emphasized, the eternal Son of God joining himself to true humanity as the Son of God becomes the Son of Man. And the only begotten of the Father is revealed as the God-Man, the true mediator who through his deity and divine power and through his spotless humanity joined in one inseparable person is fully sufficient to work out the salvation of the Lord's people. And inseparable from it is this man David. We think of these stories that we've heard perhaps from our youth, the humble shepherd boy whom the Lord raised up to slay the mighty, Goliath, the mighty giant Goliath who was tormenting the Lord's people. We hear how it was that he stood bravely before that giant saying, I would turn you into dog food in the name of the Lord. And yet, in that great victory which the Lord accomplished as the stone was thrust through his forehead and his head decapitated, there was the beginning of a trajectory that was not only great highs, but also lows. Yes, David, a man after the Lord's own heart. But if you read First, Second Samuel, you know that there were as many lows as highs, it seems. Sexual sin, terrible temptations given to all kinds of passions which led him far from the Lord, errors in judgment, things which he did which led to great grief and sorrow in his heart. But for, for me, brothers and sisters, I do not see any of that record here. God is not ashamed of his David. He calls him, simply doesn't he, his servant, David. What a great comfort it is to know that you, believer, despite all of your imperfections, despite all of your sins and shortcomings in the record books of God, you are redeemed, you are spotless, you are righteous through the blood of the Lamb. 
And God is not ashamed to call you his servant. Oh, how can we be ashamed to call him our God in Christ Jesus, where he is not ashamed to own us, even in our sins, in our shortcomings, in our failures. Well, this David, as the Lord elevated him from the sheepfold all the way to being shepherd over the Lord's people in Israel. He consolidated the kingdom so that they were all unified under one throne. He brought all of his enemies to be crushed under his armies. And the Lord was magnified through the glorious victories he gave unto his servant David. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 how it was that he was zealous to show his gratitude and praise unto the Lord that he should have a glorious temple. 2 Samuel verse 7, And it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. There had just been this temporary tent, this tabernacle that had been set up for the ark of the Lord, for the presence of the Lord, for the worship of the Lord. And he's saying it ought not to be. There ought to be a glorious palace of praise, a true temple for the worship of our God. And so it was the Lord in his condescending mercy revealed unto him a sure promise, a covenant of grace whereby he would through his line manifest this, this glorious and gracious desire. Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. The Lord speaks, and when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the heart of the Davidic covenant, that the dwelling place of God is with man. There was a partial fulfillment of that, yes, with the building of the physical temple and with the reign of King Solomon, his more accomplished son. But as we see this unfold throughout scripture we see what a prominent place it has in the 89th psalm which we sang before the sermon verse 2 there we read for i have said mercy shall be built up forever thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens i have made a covenant with my chosen i have sworn unto david my servant Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. The faithfulness of God, his steadfastness in mercy and love towards his people. It was all bound up with this covenant committed unto David and to his descendants, to his seed. 
And we read how it was that there was to be the two sides of it. Yes, the Lord promised to be faithful, but also he required faithfulness from David and from David's descendants. Psalm 132, which we read earlier in the service, verse 11. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forever. Well, that is the one side of it. They are to be faithful and they'll receive blessing. But where they are unfaithful, what then, Lord? Well, Psalm 89, verse 30. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Is this not the pattern that you see throughout the whole Old Testament, particularly after David? Yes, a few good kings, a few righteous kings whom the Lord uses to send revival. But the great trajectory is downward, downward to idolatry, downward to immorality, downward to pride, until it all climaxes and the terrible judgment is the northern kingdom is separated and then brought into exile in Assyria, the southern kingdom brought into exile into Babylon. And yes, a remnant returns but still very small until that great hour upon the coming of Jesus Christ. It seemed like things were as dark as they could possibly be. There was an imposter, an Edomite upon the throne. There was great lawlessness about the people and even false teachers risen up among the synagogues and temples of the land, and it seemed as though things were as dark as they could get. And yet the faithfulness of God shines forth here. He says, I will not allow the faithlessness and disobedience of Adam's descendants and the people of Israel general to cause my covenant to fail. David himself testified of this as he records his very last words in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 3. He, he reflects upon how it was the Lord had required him to be faithful in his office as king and how he had failed. Listen. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, when a morning without, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. That was what was required of him, to be a righteous king, to bless his nation. But then verse 5, Although my house be not so with God, Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. The sure covenant faithfulness of God was what 
David looked to as he breathed his last. He saw that his house had not measured up to the requirements that God had laid out for him. He saw, indeed, that he had failed the Lord countless times. And yet he had this as his sure hope, as his only salvation, the everlasting covenant the Lord had made with him. So it is that the covenant of grace to all believers is set forth in this way. In Isaiah 55, verse 3, listen to this. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Are you here having despair that you have sinned so long and so hard that you have run away from the Lord and there is no more hope for you? Let me tell you this, my friend. If you will listen, if you will hear, if you will come unto the Lord in faith, he will make a sure covenant with you, a certain covenant, a firm covenant based upon the faithfulness of himself. Not one of his promises shall fall unto the ground. Psalm 89, verse 48. What man is he that liveth and shall not see death? Who among us will not see death? No one. Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Can you redeem your soul from the grave? Do you understand that it will profit you nothing if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Verse 49, Lord, where are thy former loving kindnesses, which thou swearest unto David in thy truth? Oh, here is a pleading ground for you. Though you have sinned away all grace, though you may not feel the presence of God in your life, come unto this pleading ground, the sure mercies of David, the gospel of the covenant of grace, call upon him in the hour of trouble and ask him to fulfill his grace in you. Where you see the promises that God gave to David, they are realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of power that we see here in this verse. Look again in verse 69, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Listen to what the commentator John Gill says about this description of Jesus as the horn. He says, horn denotes power, it being that to a beast, as the arm is to a man, by which it defends itself and pushes down its enemies. And salvation as it says, a horn of salvation. And salvation is the work Christ came to effect and for which he was raised up and sent. And a savior he is and a mighty one as appears from his doing and suffering what he has as bearing all the sins of his people and making reconciliation for them, obeying all the precepts of the law and undergoing the penalty of it being made a curse, and being obedient to death, even the death of the cross, as also 
even his delivering them from sin, Satan and the law, which no other could have done, and from his grappling with, conquering, spoiling, and destroying all his and our enemies. This description of Jesus as the horn, it also appeared in that psalm that we read in Psalm 132, verse 17. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. There is this great dividing line between all of humanity. There are the enemies of God who will be clothed with shame, who have no time for Christ, who have no faith in his blood, who have no interest in his awesome power of salvation. And then there are those who are joined to him by true faith. They are the recipients of an almighty power, which is indomitable, inconquerable, invincible, almighty. For they are redeemed from the grave unto eternal life. They are redeemed from all the, the temptations of the devil. They are secure for time and eternity through what Jesus has done for them. But as 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10 does, uh, says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. While it is the day of grace, dear ones, let us find cover under the mercies of David, revealed in his anointed son, the great Messiah, the great horn of salvation. He will not put you to shame. Do not be ashamed of him. Amen.